you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and following will be our text for this morning and Lord willing next Sunday morning. Today we'll be focusing primarily on verses 12 through 16 and then we'll conclude the section next week as we continue to make our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. I don't know how many of you are tennis fans or play tennis. I grew up playing some. Uh, it's something I, I enjoyed watching, enjoyed playing. Don't do it a whole lot anymore. In fact, it's been a number of years since I have played. But right now, the tennis world's attention is focused on Wimbledon, the two-week-long tournament, the third Grand Slam of the tennis season. Did you know that Wimbledon has recently changed the rules. They've changed how matches will finish if they go to a fifth and final set in the men's bracket. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they were handled in other brackets prior, but it's, it's the men's tournament that is of note this morning. They, this is important because back before 2019, it was a rule at Wimbledon that if the men's match went to a fifth and final set, and if you're not familiar with tennis scoring, don't worry about that, okay? I'm not going to take the time to familiarize you with it because they're just too many layers, okay? But let's just say if the turn if the match went the maximum amount that it could go, it could not end with just a simple tiebreaker that all of the other tournaments handled. Instead, you had to win by two games. Well, this changed in 2019 because of an over six-hour-long match. The average men's match lasts about three and a half hours. There was one participant in that match, John Eisner. In that match, Eisner was the losing participant. But Eisner holds the claim to fame of being the winner of the longest ever tennis match, also played at Wimbledon about eight years prior. That game lasted over, or that match, excuse me, lasted over 11 hours. Now, they were merciful in that the match spanned three days. So they didn't just play 11 hours continuously, but they did give them time off. In reading about this match, I read that to maintain their energy, they drank coconut water, which I have no idea why you would drink that to maintain your energy. I don't like coconut. <laughs> Many of you love it, and that's okay. And then they would also eat chicken to, to maintain their energy. But can you imagine 11 hours? of hitting that ball back and forth, oftentimes over 100 miles an hour, 
quite the feat of endurance. No doubt, no doubt, as they served and volleyed and ran and so forth, they had to press on towards the end, towards the goal of what they hoped would be victory. And For one of them it was, and for one of them it wasn't. Paul, as he continues his letter to the Philippians here, indirectly encourages the Philippians to press on. I say indirectly because what he's doing here is he is talking about his own pursuit of pressing on in faithfulness. And he does so in such a way as calling them on to continue on, to maintain the course, to endure to the end. So let's see what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say for us today about pressing on in faithfulness. A pressing on that is infinitely more important than winning a tennis match. Philippians 3, 12 and following. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As we consider these words, Paul's model of perseverance is a model for us to learn from and to grow in light of. And so as we think about Paul's example here, there are two main things that I want us to see. First is Paul's pursuit. What is it that he is pursuing? And this is where we will spend the majority of our time of reflection this morning. But also, not only do we, is it important for us to see Paul's pursuit... But we also need to see his motivation. What motivates him in this pursuit? Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Philippians. We took a pause last week. And we've been working our way methodically through the book of Philippians. So I think it would be helpful just briefly for us to pause and remember where we're at in this letter. 
And then we'll jump into considering Paul's pursuit. So remember how the book opens? Paul opens with his traditional word of greeting, identifying the church to whom the letter is sent, identifying himself and Timothy as its authors. Then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, he goes through a, a common prayer common in that he often begins his letters with prayers of thanksgiving. But here, the, the prayer is focused on thanking God for this church and the grace that God has shown and is continuing to show in this church, thanking God for their partnership with Paul. And then about the middle of chapter 1, he transitions from thanking God for this church and how he prays for them and talks about his own circumstances. It's unique in his letters that he picks up his own circumstances so early on in the letter, but he does so by way of example because what he is going through as he is in prison, as he is suffering, for the sake of the gospel, he knows that the Philippians can in some way relate to what he is going through. Because although they are not imprisoned, they also are being opposed in their gospel witness. So he puts forward for them his hope, his joy, his confidence that even in prison, God is at work through him and his confidence that however this season turns out, whether by death or by his release from prison, he is confident that one thing will certainly happen, that Christ will be honored in his body by his faithfulness to Christ in death or by the future opportunity that he will have to continue to minister the name of Christ upon his release. And then he turns his attention, chapter 1, verse 27, to the Philippians and the opposition that they are facing and this call to stand firm in the gospel, but to stand firm in the gospel together, joined hand in hand in a faithful gospel witness to the world around them. So that in chapter 2, he appeals supremely to the greatest of all examples of humility and sacrifice in obedience, and that is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls them to remain faithful in this witness, to work out in their lives what God by His grace has been and continues to work in them. And then he talks about two gentlemen who also serve as faithful examples and who are known to the Philippians. Timothy and Epaphroditus. He tells the Philippians, I do hope to send Timothy to you soon. He is a faithful laborer, but right now I need him. But I do hope to send him and I hope to come to you myself. And he says, but here, along with this letter, I am sending back to you your faithful brother, your faithful minister, Epaphroditus. Another example of a faithful gospel witness who served Christ even to the point that he almost died in his faithful service. And then in chapter 3, 
after he has talked about the, the faithful examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul turns to the example of his own life and how that has important consequences for the Philippians as he strives to follow Christ faithfully and as he said in the middle of the passage that we just read, he's calling them to follow his example. And so this morning we pick up in the middle of this reflection by the Apostle Paul on his example of trusting Christ, of following Christ, and calling them to adopt a similar example. And in so doing, he focuses on, in these five verses, what is his pursuit? What is it that he sets his gaze on? What drives him forward in faithfulness? And so we pick up this morning with Paul's pursuit. What is his pursuit? Notice in verses 12 and 14, he speaks of this pressing on, this striving, but I press on to make it my own. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is, in some respects, athletic imagery as Paul is pursuing, he's pressing on towards the, the prize for, to which he is looking, much like those tennis players had to press on just to continue to try and return that ball over the net. Paul is pressing on. But what is interesting here about his pressing on is not only his endurance implied in this language, but he's also used this word before in a different way in this same chapter. Go back up to verse 6 of chapter 3. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That word there that's translated persecutor, the exact same word. It can be used in different ways, but here, Paul was pointing to, in his pre-Christ life, his pursuit, what he pressed forward against was the church. Because he saw the church as opposed to what he perceived at that time as faithfulness to God. But now he says he is no longer a persecutor of the church, but now his zeal, his energy is pointed in the exact opposite direction. Whereas he strove with all his might to oppose the church, now he strives with all his might in faithfulness because of God's grace in his life. His passion, his commitment has changed. And I think this is helpful for us to see in this way. Think about the zeal, the passion that we see implied in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, just Saul, 
the, the passion that he exhibited in opposing the church, even wanting to put believers to death. It is as if now he is saying that same zeal, that same passion that I formerly displayed in this way, now that passion is channeled in the direction of faithfulness towards the end to which God is calling me. Paul strives with, he presses on with this passion. But what does he press on towards? What is the goal that he is pursuing? It's no longer opposing the church. But what is it? Well, How does he refer to it? In verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. Paul doesn't explain here what it is that he's pursuing. I had a seminary professor, probably one of the most godly seminary professors I ever had, Chuck Lawless. Some of you know that name. And just in writing, talking about good communication and good grammar, he would tell us to always avoid the naked this. That is, the this without an explanation of what this is. Because the reader doesn't know exactly what you're referring back to. Now, he in that is, was not in any way critiquing the Apostle Paul here, okay? But, we have, a, we have a challenge because Paul writes with a naked this. He doesn't tell us. It's not unusual. We can know what it is. But if we keep going, we, we see more clearly. Second phrase, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. That is already morally perfected. That gives us some sense of what Paul is striving for. A moral perfection, a completion in Christ. Notice down in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here again, we have to answer the question, what is the it? Well, if we keep going down in verse 14, it becomes abundantly clear what Paul is striving after. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the goal. This is the end. This is what Paul is striving after. But notice he speaks of the call of God in Christ Jesus. This is a pointer to the fact that what Paul is pursuing, what he has his gaze so squarely fixed on, is not something that he will achieve on his own. It only comes to him by the call of God, and it only comes to him in Christ Jesus, which signals Paul is surely aware, as he has already made plain, that the end for which he strives is wholly dependent upon the grace of God in Christ in his life. This is not something, this end, that he will achieve on his own. It is only by God's sustaining grace to him in Christ that he will achieve this end goal of 
being with Christ in eternity. But more specifically, if we go back up to that this that I made a, a bit of an issue with, we don't know exactly what it means. Actually, we do know what it means. Because what is Paul doing? He's picking up from verses 10 and 11. That I may know Him, that is Christ, and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that, I, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the this. Paul says that his goal, what he strives after, what he longs for, is the resurrection from the dead that is his in Christ. And he says as he strives, he concedes, he has not reached that end goal. And as we talked about back on Easter Sunday when we were talking about verses 10 and 11, the language that Paul uses that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying that somehow he can accomplish this goal. Attain has the idea not of earning, but of reaching the end destination. And the language of any means possible is an idiomatic expression for Paul to say, it's what I want more than anything else. I want nothing more than this. And that is to be with Christ. Why does Paul want to be with Christ? Because as he says back in chapter 1, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, being absent from the body, those whose hope is in Christ in this life, when they are absent from the body, where are they? Present with the Lord. This is where Paul's gaze is at. This is what he is striving after. Not striving as if he can earn it but he is running with all his might towards that end which is promised to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his pursuit. This is his passion. This is where he runs his life. But what is the importance of this goal? Paul says this is his goal. This is what he's striving after. He doesn't see that he has attained it yet because he's not yet with Christ. But what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Because this explains why Paul lives as he lives. This explains why he can have the joy and confidence in Christ that he can have, even though his life at the moment does not look like he would want it to look like if he were writing his story. 
Who wants to be limited by prison, even if it is house arrest? Wouldn't Paul rather that he had the freedom to roam about and proclaim Christ wherever it is that he chose to go and where the Spirit led? Surely he would, if it were left to himself, prefer that kind of liberty. But he knows in God's providence where he is is where Christ has him to proclaim his name in that house arrest. And so he can have hope because God's purposes for him have not been thwarted. Even in house arrest, he is striving onward towards this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is important because it explains Paul's ministry. It explains his joy, his confidence, but it also explains why he writes to the Philippians the ways that he does. We're not going to look at them for the sake of time, but perhaps this afternoon you want to look at the following passages. Just note them down. Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Chapter 2, verse 16. Here in what we have already read this morning, 3, 10 through 11 and 3, 13 through 14. 3, 20. 4, 5. Why do I give you these references? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Now next week we will look at this verse in more detail. But in all of these places that I have just given you, exemplified here at the end of chapter 3. Paul repeatedly points the Philippians to this reality that their hope is not in this life. That their hope is in being with Christ and the completion of God's work that He has started in them in Christ. And this should inform how they live their lives now passionately pursuing gospel faithfulness in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation as he says in chapter 2. Not because life is easy. Not because faithfulness in this life will guarantee acceptance by outsiders. But faithfulness in this life because brothers and sisters, there is more yet to come. There is the promise of being with Christ. There is the promise of wholeness in Him in eternity. And this is what Paul strives after. This is what he is striving to encourage the Philippians in. And this is to be our motivation as well. This world is not our home. Let us grow in living that way in living according to 1 Peter 1, 3 and following, that our inheritance is not promised in this life, but there is laid up for us an imperishable inheritance that God will surely provide those who are His in Christ Jesus. 
Note down 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. There we see one example of what this striving after looks like for the Apostle Paul. There he says that he has become all things to all men so that he might save some. So that he might proclaim the Gospel to some in hopes that God would grant them repentance and faith. Notice also, turn with me just perhaps one page over to the right in your copy of the Scriptures, Colossians 1. We see what this striving looks like in the Apostle Paul's life. What it did look like. Colossians 1, 24-29 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling what up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, here it is, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. What does it look like? For Paul to strive after the upward call of God in Christ, it looks like striving empowered by God with all of the power through His Spirit that God works through Him to proclaim the Gospel, to serve the churches, to help others grow in Christ's likeness. This is what it looks like for Paul to strive after this faithfulness. In 1998, Benoit LeCompte became the first person to swim the Atlantic Ocean without the benefit of a kickboard. He swam 3,716 miles from Massachusetts to France. Over the course of 73 days, two-hour sessions at a time, frequently up to eight hours a day, he would swim. How did he finish that task? I can only imagine that he didn't think about the miles that were behind. He had his eyes set on the shoreline that he certainly could not see but that he kept swimming towards day after day after day. 2005, Dean Karnazes pulled off a non-stop 350-mile run in San Francisco, which is not exactly flat, 80 hours straight that he ran. I don't like running 80 seconds. Maybe he had just watched Forrest Gump or something, I don't know. 
But you think about these amazing feats of endurance, and there are others that we, we could certainly find and list. How did they do it? They kept their eye on the goal, the end, the finish. And friends, if we are going to walk in faithfulness, if we are going to strive in faithfulness, we have to do the same. We have to keep our eyes on the goal, the promise. And not the promise of floating on the clouds. Not the promise of enjoying our favorite hobbies forever. Friends, the promise of being with Christ and being done with sin. That is the goal. And that is the promise. And so it's important, I want to interject one thing here. That Paul's example for us here is not just, an, it's not, period, it's not an example of endurance towards whatever goal we might put out as a goal worthy of attaining. This is not a pattern of how you get things done to whatever goal you want to achieve. Friends, this is the pattern towards one and one goal only. And that is the goal of being with Christ. Everything else pales in comparison. And what motivated Paul? Well, in part, what motivated him, as we've already alluded to, is this end goal. But did you notice there's another motivation if that motivation is out in front of him, the end goal of being with Christ, did you hear that there's a motivation behind him that fuels him? Again, Philippians 1, or excuse me, Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? What does he say? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why does Paul pursue this? Not because of the gumption within Paul. He pursues this upward call because of what Christ has done for him. Because Christ has seized him. Because He is Christ's. The word that Paul uses, I press on. Notice he says, I press on to make it my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, that I have reached the end. This same word is the word that Paul uses there because Christ has made me His own. It is because of the work of Christ. It is because of the grace of Christ. This motivates the Apostle Paul unlike anything else. God's powerful, majestic grace to us in Christ dare not, does not promote laziness or lackadaisical living. 
it does just the opposite. It provides fuel. It provides motivation for faithful living. For living a life that honors the Savior who has given Himself to purchase us. And who by His Spirit has taken hold of our lives. In sports, coming back to that theme again, there have been many, many technological advances over the years. The tennis rackets have gotten bigger. The tennis shoes have gotten faster, more comfortable. The golf clubs have gotten bigger, more efficient. But these advances have not prompted laziness on the part of the athletes that use them. In fact, it's probably true that athletes today train harder than they ever have for a variety of reasons. The technology does not promote laziness. How much more is it true that the grace of God in Christ does not lead us to say, well, I can just sit back and let go and let God and enjoy the lazy river on the ride. The grace of God in Christ spurs us on in greater and greater faithfulness as, yes, we rest in Him, we trust in Him, we look only to Him. And then what happens? Philippians 2 grows and grows as a reality in our life. We work out with fear and trembling the salvation that God by His grace has worked in. So what do we do? How do, how do we respond? Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that is the place where you need to respond this morning. To hear that you cannot attain, you cannot obtain forgiveness and eternity with Christ by your own self-effort. That is not at all what Paul is saying in this passage. And I hope this has become plain as we've worked our way through it. He is not saying if you just work hard enough, God will accept you. Friends, God will not accept you on the basis of your effort. Because even if, it's not possible, okay? But even if you could resolve to remain perfect from now until the day you die, and again, you can't do it, I can't do it, none of us can do it, but let's just say for a moment, you could do it, you still have a serious problem. And that is the backlog of sin. That is the backlog that is all of ours because of our sinful nature. And there is no way that you can address that backlog by your own self-effort. There is only one way that that backlog of sin and the future log of sin, which is surely ours in this life, 
The only way that that log of sin can be addressed is by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that if you put your trust in Him, you can know wholeness. You can know the promise of an eternity with Christ. You can know the promise of forgiveness right now. There is one other way that your sin can be addressed. But friend, it's not a desirable one. And it is to be apart from God forever in eternal punishment. There are two ways to live. To live your own way and suffer that eternal consequence or to turn to Christ trusting in Him. Will you follow Christ today if you are not trusting and following Him? But for those of you who are striving to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, what does this look like? What does this look like to strive as the Apostle Paul strives? So he gives a response He encourages the mature to think this way. This could be a shot at the opponents who are claiming to be mature but are preaching a different message than the Apostle Paul. And he's saying those who are truly mature, this is how they will think. This is the right way to understand the Christian life and following Christ. There is no other way. But as a friend... He also says to them, if you don't see it this way, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's not saying that if you don't agree with me, well, maybe God will show you a different way and we can just agree to disagree. No, I think what the Apostle Paul is saying as he writes to these friends who may be trying to sort through these issues, he's saying, I have given to you the Holy Spirit-inspired way in which we are to live our lives. But if you're not at a point where you can see that this is what our lives ought to look like, I'm going to entrust you to God, and He will make it plain to you that this is how we ought to live. He's not implying that there is another way. This is the only way to strive after faithfulness. So what does pressing towards the goal look like in our lives? Well, first, let's remember that pressing towards the goal is motivated by God's grace in Christ. So it begins and continues trusting and resting in the work of God in Christ. Remembering perpetually That as we strive after faithfulness, yes, we are striving to please God, but please Him in a way to honor Him, not please Him in a way to make ourselves acceptable to Him. So our striving rests in Christ. Our striving depends on Christ. Our striving looks to Christ. But what does striving towards the goal of being with Christ, pressing on in the Christian life. What does it look like for you? What will it look like for you this week to grow one step in 
pressing on towards the goal. For some of you, because of the overwhelming circumstances of life, the grief that you are facing, the uncertainties that you are facing, pressing on in faithfulness looks like opening the Scriptures and pouring out your heart to God. Pleading for His grace and mercy to sustain you. The Apostle Paul went through seasons like this. If you don't believe me, look at 2 Corinthians 1 today. Where he talks about despairing even of life itself. How does growing in, pressing on, look in your prayer life as you plead to the Lord not only for your needs, but also for the needs of others. For God to be an ever-present help to those around you who are hurting. How can you grow this week in pressing on in prayer, in Scripture, in investing in someone else, calling up someone and say, hey, you know what? I've been thinking about reading this Christian book. Would you like to read it with me and let's talk about it? Or read this book of the Bible together and talk about it? The Apostle Paul labored to see others grow in Christ's likeness. Does striving, pressing on towards the end goal in your life look like taking someone by the hand and striving to walk alongside them? How does it look in your witness to non-believers around you? Befriending your neighbors. Befriending a co-worker. Continuing to develop that relationship and seeking to inject gospel truth and hope in Christ. Maybe tomorrow it looks like having the conversation. So what was your weekend like? Well, you know, went to church, heard a sermon that was okay, but you know, the, he's talking about this, this idea of continuing in faithfulness. And it's really got me, got me thinking. And, and this, is, this is what it means to, to press on and what do, you, what do you think? Is, is following Christ important to you? Does, does that matter to you? And maybe that opens up a door for a conversation, a gospel witness. Maybe growing in faithfulness looks like re-examining how it is that you support those who are giving their lives for the gospel. Supporting missionaries and others, whether financially or through prayer. There are a variety of ways, and we all have room to grow in striving after faithfulness, in pressing on to the end. But as I said earlier, friends, let's grow in living out the truth that this world is not our home and our hope is in a Savior who will return and that one day, one day, we will be with Him. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to You once more, Father, thank You for Your upward call in Christ Jesus. Thank You, Father, that it is only by Your grace and mercy 
that we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Father, that it is by Your grace and mercy that we are sustained in Christ. Father, help us to grow in living out faithfulness, in living out obedience, in having our eyes set on the promise of being with Jesus. And as we are set with our gaze ahead, motivated by Your grace in Christ from behind, help us this week, Father, to press on in faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.